Yeah. Uh, yeah. Excellent. A weather report. Uh, it is foggy, cold, and um, foggy. Um, yes, and it's about what fifty-six degrees. It's as Mark Twain would have said: the coldest winter he ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, uh, it's home. I love it. Uh, you know, I would not live anywhere. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> thank you. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's gone out of control over the last few years. Uh, but you have to live somewhere, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, it's in the background. Uh, it's actually about maybe 12 inches from from me, from the microphone. And uh, yeah, yeah, so it should hopefully work. Very good. Okay, so Tony, we'll jump right into the Got it. Uh, well, hi, my name is Tony Siba, and I'm an instructor in uh, disruption, clean energy, and entrepreneurship at Stanford's Continuing Studies Program. And I'm the author of Clean Disruption of Energy and Transportation, and most recently, the author of Rethink X, Rethinking Transportation 2020-2030, which is about the uh, new uh, okay I have to say that again uh, so so that that that's it uh, so I'm the author of rethinking transportation 2020 2030 uh, with the subtitle of the collapse of the disruption of transport okay I'll start again so hi hi my name is Tony Siba and I am the author of clean disruption of energy and transportation I am a Silicon Valley entrepreneur an instructor at Stanford's Continuing Studies Program, and most recently the author of Rethinking Transportation 2020-2030, which is about the disruption of transportation and the collapse of the internal combustion vehicle and oil industries. Yeah, we have received extensive, extensive coverage, uh, not only in the uh, in the mainstream media and in the financial news and in the business media and pretty much everywhere. Um, the, the 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 report is about the economics and it's uh, based on data and based on evidence. And essentially, what we have uh, the feedback that we have received is. Yeah, this makes sense. Uh, the only pushback is, boy, this looks like a very fast uh, disruption. And really, is it going to happen that quickly? Uh, but essentially, uh, we haven't received any uh, pushback on the data or the logic, the rationale of why this should happen. Uh, well, <laughs> we, 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 yeah, we have received emails from Exxon and a couple of other oil companies. Um, they're not, they're not, you know, many, many of them get it. Many of them see what is happening and, um, you know, how fast the disruption is happening and so on. Uh, but, you know, like I said, it's, it's uh, resistance in, in this case 
denial is essentially futile. Yeah, I've been working on disruption and specifically disruption of energy and transportation for more than a decade. And um, essentially, my predictions have been right on the money. And uh, so in 2009, for instance, I predicted that solar energy would be about 3.5 cents per kilowatt hour by 2020. Uh, and that's already happened. And of course, at the time, a lot of folks said that I was insane because prices at the time were in the 20 to 30 cent range. Uh, so I said it's going to come down by about 10x over the next decade. And in, in fact, it has already happened. When I published Clean Disruption of Energy and Transportation about three years ago, I predicted that by 2017, 2018, the market would offer unsubsidized electric vehicles with 200 mile range in the 35 to 40 thousand um, dollar price range, unsubsidized again. And uh, again, many mainstream analysts said you're insane. And in fact, we have already seen two: the Tesla Model Three and the GM Bolt. The GM Bolt is already in the market, uh, so it's you know these predictions are already happening. Um, and essentially, what 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 that process has uh, taught me is that energy and transportation are becoming one. So we used to see uh, electricity as one industry, uh, coal and nukes and uh, natural gas and so on, and transportation as another industry uh, with the internal combustion engine automobile and trucks and and an oil kind of value chain behind it. And, And they were essentially two separate industries and they're now merging. Uh, So energy and transportation are becoming one. And I predicted this a long time ago, and it's already happening and it's going to accelerate. Uh, And what this transport as a service, um, basically uh, disruption is going to do is accelerate that and turn it into one industry, energy and transportation. Um, the model that I've used is is fairly simple. You take uh, existing technology cost curves. Uh, for instance, every technology has an improvement curve, and uh, all of Silicon Valley, for instance, is based on Moore's law. And Moore's law says that every two years, the um, performance of computers on a per same dollar basis doubles. And that has happened over the last, oh, a few decades. And so if you keep, that's a 41% improvement uh, every year, year after year. And so based on Moore's law, you can essentially predict what the cost of computing is going to be in five years, 10 years, 15 years, and so on. And and those who have predicted that have made a lot of money betting on, on what improvement in services and so on. Uh, would come out of computing. And those who have predicted against essentially have been disrupted. For instance, the publishing industry, uh, airline, and and so on and so forth. So I have taken technology cost curves such as solar. Solar has improved by about 11.5% every year, year after year, since 1970. So it's gone down from $100 uh, per watt in, in 1970 to about 30 cents, 30 cents uh, uh, today. And so if you take that 11% cost curve into the future, three years, five years, 15 years, and so on, you can essentially predict where solar is going to be um, in, in over the next decade or so. And that's what I've done. So it's not magic. Um, and I've used that same methodology to 
essentially predict the disruption of energy and transportation, electric vehicles, solar energy, uh, batteries, and now the, 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 the framework, I, I developed a technology disruption framework that includes these technology cost curves as well as business model innovation, as well as product innovation. And what I've concluded is that the convergence of these technology cost curves of several technologies enables new business models and enables new possibilities of product innovation. And it's that convergence that causes the disruptions. Um, so I'll give you an example. Ten years ago, we had this new thing called the iPhone. That, that was exactly ten years ago. Um, and at the time, the smartphone came out, the iPhone, and, and later the Android, the Google Android. And at the time, experts and insiders and mainstream analysts said, who would ever buy a $600 uh, phone when you can buy the $100 Nokia or Motorola? And famous last words, right? Where is Nokia now? Uh, disrupted. So they did not get that this was a disruption, uh, and it was what I call a disruption from above. That's when you start out with a new product that is superior to what the, the, the existing market offers. But when the technology cost curves go down, essentially the cost of computing, the cost of uh, digital imaging, the cost of sensors, and so on, uh, has gone down exponentially over the last 10 years. And so that's why the uh, and, and, and also the convergence has enabled new business models and new products, uh, apps such as Uber, such as Airbnb, uh, dating apps and so on, that uh, essentially uh, turned the smartphone into a disruptive product and a disruptive platform. And this is what I call a disruption from above. Um, and so, again, I mean, all of these predictions I make with data, with evidence, and with this new, you know, SIBA technology disruption framework. So there's no magic to it. I have published it. Uh, anybody can predict based on this, on this framework. Yes, you can have actually, uh, so transport, the, the, the finding of our report, of the Rethink Transportation Report, um, is the following. We have three uh, distinct uh, megatrends, one of which, uh, two technology and one business model. Uh, the electric vehicle is uh, disruptive, but it's independent of autonomous vehicles. And autonomous vehicles are disruptive, but independent of electric vehicles. And then the number three uh, disruptive uh, trend is essentially ride hailing, uh, you know, Uber and Lyft and Didi and so on. It's on-demand transportation. So these three uh, are separate. Um, but what we found was that when they converge, when you get level four autonomous vehicles or level five, um, essentially, uh, when you converge ride hailing with autonomous vehicles with electric vehicles, essentially this is going to cause the disruption. But these are three distinct uh, disruptions that are going to converge and are going to cause the major transport as a service disruption. Yes, yes. Yes, that's exactly what it is. And so we modeled, for instance, what would happen if you have uh, autonomous vehicles with internal combustion engine automobiles versus autonomous vehicles uh, with electric vehicles. 
Um, and uh, because what we believe is that some companies, some of the incumbent um, auto manufacturers, are going to want to have autonomous vehicles with diesel engines or, or gasoline engines and so on. So when you model the economics of, of you know, ICE vehicles, internal combustion engine versus uh, electric vehicles, both of which are autonomous, essentially you get that AEV, uh, autonomous electric vehicles, are far, far, far cheaper than AIs, autonomous, um, you know, gasoline vehicles. And why is this? Because uh, of several reasons. The main one being that electric vehicles, uh, so one, electric vehicles have only about 20 moving parts, as opposed to uh, gasoline vehicles, which have about 2,000 moving parts. What this means is that electric vehicles last about 500,000 miles, even with today's technology. And we know of companies working on the million mile electric vehicle. Um, but even if you keep it at 500,000 miles, internal combustion, <clears throat> internal combustion engine automobiles last about 140 to 200,000 miles. So essentially, when you, and this didn't matter until now, because on average, we drive our cars about 10,000 miles a year. Uh, so you would need to drive an EV for 50 years in order to take advantage of these 500,000 miles, right? Um, you know, unless you live in Cuba, you're not going to drive your car uh, 50 years. And so what happens, and this is the, where the convergence of technologies come, uh, comes in, uh, is that when you have, we drive our cars as individuals 4% of the day. Uh, the other 96% of the time, it's parked. Um, so, you know, that's not a very efficient uh, use of a very expensive asset. When you have autonomous vehicles, essentially uh, they're on the road all the time, say 40% of the time, as opposed to being parked uh, most of the time. So that's a 10-time improvement in uh, efficiency, which means that Instead of 10,000 miles per year, an autonomous EV would be driving 100,000 miles per year, uh, which means that over five years, an AEV, an Uber, for instance, or a Lyft, would drive an EV over five years, the same EV. So what's the difference between that and the autonomous gasoline vehicle? That you would only be able to drive an autonomous uh, gasoline vehicle for about a year and a half. Um, and then you would have to buy another one and another one. So essentially, the autonomous EV would last three times longer th than the autonomous ICE, which means that it it's the equivalent of the ICE vehicle being three times more expensive or so uh, upfront. And so the new metric of transport as a service changes. I mean, every time you've had a disruption, for instance, the web, uh, we've had new metrics. So the new metric, so today the metric of the auto industry is how many cars are you selling, right? Uh, so it's pushing steel. It's I'm selling a million cars, I'm selling 10 million cars, and so on. The new metric of the task disruption is cost per mile. Essentially, the, 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 the metric changes by which the market will and the consumer will essentially buy the products and services because everything is going to be on demand. And when that metric, uh, that metric, and when that new metric, the cost per mile, uh, is, is, is basically what's used, essentially you're going to need autonomous and electric. And so electric is going to beat gasoline vehicles because of that, because it lasts 500,000 miles because it's 80 to 90% cheaper on a per mile to fuel. It's 80 to 90% cheaper to maintain on a per mile basis. Um, and insurance, of course, when you have autonomous vehicles, it's going to become 90 plus percent cheaper because autonomous vehicles are going to, um, you know, drive much better than humans. So insurance is going to become far cheaper. Uh, and also, I mean, who's going to steal a car 
uh, when when it's an autonomous driven, when it has no steering wheel and no pedals, um, and when you know essentially everybody's going to know where that car is going to be at all times. So essentially, the cost of insurance is also going to go down by about ninety plus percent. Uh, so all of these costs are going to go down, and all of them are going to benefit the electric vehicle choice over the uh, internal combustion engine choice. Uh, and uh, essentially, this means that uh, fleets are going to own cars. So this is going to disrupt not only gasoline and diesel vehicles, this is going to disrupt the concept of ownership of cars. We're not going to need to own cars anymore. Um, because why? Because the day that autonomous vehicles are approved, the combination of autonomous, electric, and on-demand is going to be, on a cost-per-mile basis, up to 10 times cheaper than the cost of buying a new car. 10 times cheaper. So essentially, let's assume that 2021 is when uh, Level 4 autonomous vehicles are approved, and uh, you know, from a regulatory perspective, and they'll be ready from a technology perspective. And that day, you go to buy a car, and your decision is going to be, do I spend $10,000 a year over the next five years, um, or do I spend $1,000 a year uh, over the next five years? And so that's a no-brainer every time in history. And you know, my work is disruption, and I've looked at historic disruptions all the way back to the 15th century. Um, every time that a new product or service similar has come out that is 10 times cheaper than the incumbent, there has been a disruption every single time. So, you know, AEVs are going to be 10 times cheaper on a per mile basis the day that autonomous, autonomous vehicles are approved, which means that people are going to stop buying new cars because it's not going to make any economic sense to do it. Um, and, and basically, that's going to be the beginning of the disruption of the, that we talk about in this report, both the oil industry and, and the, um, and the uh, manufa auto manufacturing industry. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I under I understand, and I, I have heard that uh, many times. And essentially, my answer is the following: um, you know, a ten x difference in cost is is basically historically uh, has always caused a disruption. Uh, that's one. Two, disruptions always happen from the outside. It's it's not um, common that that existing companies disrupt themselves and. So when you look at uh, smartphones, essentially Apple and Google had never built a phone before. 
and now they own the smartphone market. They own the, the phone market, essentially. Uh, and, and folks at the time said, oh, look, uh, computer companies uh, don't have the skills to build a phone. And guess what? They did, and they disrupted the market. Famous last words. And that has happened every single time that the, you know, Amazon. Amazon doesn't know logistics, does it? Uh, well, boom, they disrupted not just the books, uh, but also they're disrupting the whole logistics uh, industry with, with services and products and so on um, that, that, that logistics uh, did not have before. So disruptions usually come from the outside. Uh, you know, making a, an electric vehicle is actually easy. I know high school kids who have built uh, electric vehicles. Why? Because they're essentially, you know, they have 20 moving parts that you can build. You can build. Yes. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Yes. Okay. 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 Yeah. Um, yes. I'm sorry. Yes, I'm back. Um, so um, let me let me restart. So several. Um, yeah. So um, I know Sven and and uh, I know him well. And the, the, I have heard the argument from from many people that uh, disruptions can't possibly happen in automotive uh, in in ten years or in fifteen years, and, and it's going to be a slow moving thing. But Essentially, I've heard that argument many times before. I was an early employee at a then little company called Cisco Systems. And, um, you know, this is in the early 90s. And um, basically at the time, the idea that uh, a little router company would disrupt all of telecoms was insane, right? I mean, you know, this little company in Mountain View had no... Uh, essentially no no skills and no uh, background in telecoms and guess what AT&T got disrupted the whole world got disrupted by the internet and this little company in Mountain View without any uh, skills or knowledge of that industry essentially disrupted it uh, Apple and Google had never built a phone before and guess what they disrupted the whole telephone market too. Um, you know, Nokia was selling 400 million cell phones at the time, and they made fun of, uh, and the experts and the insiders and the, uh, you know, mainstream analysts made fun of the uh, iPhone and, and, and later of the Android. And they thought, you know, these folks, Apple and Google, don't have any experience in, in telephony and famous last words. So, I mean, the point is, oh, and Uber. Uber, um, that you know, a company that was started just in 2009 uh, here in San Francisco, uh, already eight years later has more bookings than the whole taxi industry in the United States. And that's a transportation disruption that has happened in less than 10 years. So the evidence is, is overwhelming in favor of outsiders causing disruptions. And the insiders and the mainstream analysts uh, always say, oh my God, you need new skills and you, you need these skills and you need to uh, 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 know the value chain and you need to know this and that and the other. And the truth is that you don't um, because disruptive products are different from the incumbents. If you want to make another you know, internal combustion engine vehicle, then yeah, it's hard to compete with the incumbents. But electric vehicles are easy to build. I mean, a high school, you know, team can build. And in fact, um, a university team in Switzerland beat uh, Porsche, the million dollar Porsche uh, in acceleration with an electric vehicle. So in fact, the skills are very easy to develop an electric vehicle. Um, and also autonomous technology is being developed by a lot of startup companies and so on, the Ubers and, uh, I mean, the, the, the new Ubers. Uh, so, in fact, I, I disagree with the, 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 
you know, the fact that you need to have these skills and so on and so forth um, to disrupt the market. In fact, not having them is an advantage. And, and that's what has allowed the Teslas of the world and the BYDs of the world to disrupt, um, you know, to be on their way to disrupting the, the auto industry and the Ubers, which had no idea about transportation to disrupt the taxi industry, and they're just getting started. Um, so, you know, disruptions come from the outside, uh, and, and, and this convergence is happening now, and it's going to happen very quickly. Um, and like I said, every time you've had a 10x difference in cost between um, an equivalent product or service, and the incumbent, you've had a disruption, and, and this time it's, it's going to be no different. They're 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 doing both. I mean, they're they're doing uh, alliances and they're developing it on their own. I mean, Uber bought. Um, a trucking company, an, uh, an electric trucking company. They're, they're, they're using their technology there, and they're also doing alliances. So it's not either or, it's all of the above. I mean, technology companies uh, have a way of moving very, very, very quickly and you know, doing a lot of experiments, and whatever works, they keep, and whatever doesn't work, then they stop doing it. So in that sense, Waymo is doing alliances with car companies, but they also build their own car. Um, and Apple is building a, its own car, and it's also doing alliances. And, and so you know, Baidu and Didi and a lot of folks are doing both, developing their own and also doing alliances. And you know, uh, here, here's one thing that a lot of the mainstream analysts don't get. Um, electric, so AEVs, autonomous vehicles, are computers on wheels. Essentially, once you have level four autonomous vehicles, it's going to be a computer with, um, you know, a, a GPU or, a, or a, essentially a, a computing platform, an operating system that runs the vehicle, uh, and it's going to have no steering wheel and no pedals and so on. So essentially, it's a computer on wheels. Um, all you need uh, to get this market going is one single operating system that gets to level four or five autonomy. That's it. All you have. So you, need, you don't need a consensus. You don't need 40, 50 companies to develop autonomous technology for this disruption to happen. All you need is one. Uh, if you look at the history of uh, computers, you know whether it's uh, smartphones, all you have now is two operating systems that have 99% of the market, iOS um, and, and uh, Android. In PCs, you have two operating systems, Windows and Mac. In tablets, you have two operating systems. And all you needed to get those markets going was one operating system to work and the market was up and running, right? So the same thing is going to happen with autonomous vehicles. All you're going to need is one, whether it's Waymo, whether it's comma.ai, which is doing an open source operating system for, um, for don't forget the open source operating systems, right? Or Baidu or Didi or, or um, you know, anyone anywhere in the world that develops an operating system that gets to uh, level four. Basically, it's off to the races. Uh, and if you, you know, listen to what folks are saying, Tesla is saying that they will get to level five by 2019. Volvo is saying by 2021. Um, a lot of folks are converging on 2020 uh, as essentially the, 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 the date by which they're, they're going to get to level four or five. And um, you know, only one of them needs to make it in order for this market to essentially take off. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
don't think so. But, you know, the reason that um, I started RethinkX with my co-founder is that we wanted to answer exactly that kind of question with data, with evidence. And uh, we wanted to study the speed and scale of technology disruptions uh, and basically figure out, do the numbers, the ups and the downs and the pluses and the minuses and so on. So specifically in transportation, what we found was that the transport as a service disruption is going to uh, essentially save each family $6,000 a year on average, $6,000 a year. At the level of the United States, and I think you can extrapolate to Canada and to Europe, uh, essentially the United States is going to have a trillion dollars in additional consumer spending because of the transport as a service disruption, a trillion dollars. Essentially, consumer spending is 71% of GDP. A trillion dollars is going to generate millions of additional jobs, a lot of um, uh, economic activity, and and so on. In addition to that, the time that we spend or waste driving, if we, some of us at least, spend that time working, which I do, uh, doctors spend time on the phone with with. Um, customers and uh, nurses nurse and uh, teachers teach and students study and some of us you know watch tv or uh, you know take coffee or eat or whatever while we not drive we calculated that that could generate an additional trillion dollars in um, in productivity gains so this is two trillion dollar boost to the u.s economy that's you know an extra 12 and a half percent increase, and that's year after year after year. So that's a permanent $2 trillion boost. And that's huge. That That is bigger than any tax cut in history. That's bigger than any uh, infusion of cash into the economy in history. Um, on the downside, so uh, that's the positive. On the downside, we are going to have millions of jobs that are going to be lost. Drivers, Uh, workers in the oil industry and automotive and so on. And we actually calculated more or less how many jobs are going to be lost, what it would cost society, um, those jobs. And, you know, we will need to mitigate those jobs. Uh, But now we have the data. Uh, We have the data and we can see that the upside for society as a whole is going to be far bigger, five to ten times bigger in financial terms, than the downside. Uh, And so we'll have to, now that we have that knowledge, we can essentially create the policies to mitigate the downside while taking advantage of the upside. And what does mitigate the downside mean? We'll need to have a social safety net, uh, income, healthcare, and retraining programs for the folks who are going to be affected negatively by, by this economy. But now we know Now we know more or less, we have an idea years ahead of when it's going to happen and we can start working on the right policies to help and mitigate those who are going to be affected negatively uh, because we know that the upside is going to be bigger. So, you know, that's the long answer to your question. We now know that the upside is much better for society than the downside. And that doesn't even include, um, for instance, the fact that for the first time in history, uh, all a lot of demographics that have been left behind by the car ownership model, such as the elderly, the disabled, and the poor, and the young, uh, are going to have access to cheap transportation, accessible, on-demand transportation. This has never happened before in history. Now they can have access to education, to jobs, to healthcare, to entertainment that they never had before. And there's a big upside in terms of the, um, uh, you know, the social aspects, the social benefits to this disruption. So all in all, this is a far more beneficial disruption than it is um, negative, but we still need to mitigate uh, the negative consequences of the disruption. We, we, we need, well, now we know, right? I mean, we, you, you can't make governments 
you know, do what they don't want to do. But now we know, we have the knowledge, we can anticipate that the disruption is coming. We can anticipate what the positive and negative consequences are going to be. Um, and essentially, we know it's going to happen. And, and, and some governments are actually uh, at the state level and at the city level are listening. I mean, recently, Colorado passed a uh, an autonomous vehicle bill, and the governor said every American family in Colorado will save you know, $5,600 a year because of autonomous vehicles. And this was a bipartisan bill. So at the local level, at the state level, uh, this is already happening. And many states in the U.S. are already uh, in a race uh, to approve autonomous vehicles because they're starting to see the upside of autonomous vehicles to their constituents, right? Um, and overseas, also Singapore and China and, and New Zealand and, and, and the Netherlands, a lot of um, basically places, whether it's at the country level or the city level or the, or the state level, are already approving autonomous vehicles. They see what's coming and they're getting ready for it. Yes. Actually, the, the total opposite is going to happen because uh, individuals are not going to own cars. Cars are going to be owned by in buses and vans and trucks by fleets. So they're going to be owned by Ford, by GM, by Uber, and so on. We're not going to own cars. What that means, and those cars are going to be used 10 times more, so 40% of the time, as opposed to the 4% of the time that uh, individuals use it now. So we have calculated that... Uh, we're going to need 80% fewer cars on the road to meet the demand that we have today and even a 50% increase in demand. We're going to need 80% fewer cars. So we're going to see 20% of the cars that we have today on the road, uh, but they're going to be running around most of the time and supposed to be parked. Um, so what that means is that uh, traffic and congestion is going to go away because you're going to have far fewer cars that also uh, are computers on wheels that are going to be connected and they can predict traffic and they can go around traffic and they can drive better than humans so they can use the highway or the road uh, up to four times more efficiently that than, than humans do. So we're going to have four times fewer cars that also use space four times better than humans. So essentially congestion is going to go away. Traffic is going to go away. Uh, even at peak loads, uh, you're going to have no traffic essentially because these cars can plan, plan ahead. So essentially um, congestion is going to go away, gone, right? And the other upside of this is that uh, a lot of the space that is currently used for parking, for instance, is going to be obsolete. So 80 to 90 percent of uh, parking spaces are going to be vacant. So for the first time in history, um, in at least 100 years, we're going to have the ability to recreate our cities, to redesign our cities around human beings, not around cars. Um, so we're going to have, depending on the city, 20-30% of the landmass of the city open up. And we're going to have to decide what to do with that. We're going to be able to build green parks. We're going to be able to build affordable housing, new businesses, and so on. But a third in many cities of the space is going to open up. I mean, I have calculated that in Los Angeles... The empty space that is going to be left by parking, um, you can fit three cities the size of San Francisco in that three cities the size of San Francisco in the empty parking uh, space left by the task disruption. And so in L.A., 
the citizens and, 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 and the policymakers and so on are going to have to make a decision in LA and every city around the world, right? Um, what do we do with that space? Do we want a massive desert there? Uh, or do we want to generate the wealth of three San Francisco's? And we can do that. We have for the first time in you know, 100 years, the opportunity to make those decisions. And by the way, if you care about climate, and this is not why this disruption is going to happen, when we go to uh, 95% of miles being electric, uh, autonomous and electric, which is our finding by 2030, essentially this is the uh, single biggest decrease in emissions of any one decision in history. So essentially 95% of the emissions of oil for road transportation are going to be gone just because we're going to go into AEV and it's going to cost nothing. Not only is it going to cost nothing, it's going to have trillions of dollars in benefit. Um, and this is just a side effect of the societal you know, benefits of this disruption. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, th th this is what the data say. This is what the, the evidence say. Uh, you know, it's all about the numbers. It's all about the economics. Uh, and, you know, we believe that this is an inevitable disruption uh, overall because uh, all the technologies are global. And um, when a country, as you said, uh, essentially opposes it, all they're doing is basically letting the the, the benefits of the wealth creation and of, of the technology creation happen in another country. And all they're doing is they're going to be stuck with a more expensive and uncompetitive infrastructure. And essentially, they won't be able to uh, give their citizens a higher lifestyle and they won't be able to compete in the world uh, with a country that has a transport system that's 10 times cheaper, a logistics system that's 10 times cheaper, and so on and so forth. So essentially leadership in this space is essential from our policymakers in order for us to take advantage of the upside, like I said, and also plan to mitigate the downside. Um, you know, there, there are also uh, geopolitical implications that, 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 that you may want to uh, talk about. I mean, this, this is, you know, a lot of the benefits are going to happen uh, uh, for every family and, 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 and you know, for, for the environment and, and financial and economic and new wealth creation and new industries and so on. But geopolitically, this is also going to change things. Um, and there are countries that export oil today. Um, that's going to be different uh, because, you know, if you're not able to compete with oil at $25 a barrel, uh, which is what this disruption is going to uh, entail, um, essentially a lot, of, a lot of those countries that can't compete are going to be in trouble. Um, and so that's, again, something that we're going to be, uh, have to plan uh, for uh, because essentially we don't want to be a lot of the downsides of, of, of the disruption we can foretell uh, but we have to get ready for it we have to get ready from a social perspective financial perspective and also uh, you know from a security perspective Yeah, uh, for Canada as a whole, it's not going to be, I mean, if you look at what the percent of uh, rents, of oil rents that, uh, you know, GDP, uh, oil rents as a percent of GDP in Canada, is, it's fairly small, actually, in both the U.S. and in Canada, they're, they're fairly small because both economies are uh, actually quite diversified. Uh, yeah, over, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So it's incumbent upon both the Canadian government and the regional governments to plan for this, to not deny the disruption and start mitigating the, the, the potential downside and start, you know, retraining programs and so on for the new economy. And um, so it's, it's now that we know that it's coming and it's coming soon. Essentially, policymakers should start planning on how to mitigate the downside.
there, <laughs> there you go. I mean, solar is growing. It's, it's essentially the solar market is doubling every two years, and it has doubled since 1990 every two years, and you know that it's going to accelerate. So, uh, you know, if you live in a city with 360 days of sunshine, you better start investing in that uh, because it's, it's a growing industry, and that's one of the ways in which you can uh, mitigate. So you have folks working in energy, uh, and you can retrain them to work in the winning energy, which is going to be solar and also wind. There you go. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, I hope that, that Canada will be able to... And it's not just exporting energy. I mean, when you get solar, which is already the cheapest form of energy, both on the rooftop and in the desert, uh, and going down in cost, um, essentially what you can do is attract industries that need inexpensive, cheap industries, right? So what you're getting now with companies like Facebook and Google and so on, they're moving to the desert, to Nevada, their data centers. The new data centers are they're building in places like New Mexico and Nevada and so on that have cheap solar um, because solar is going down exponentially in cost. Um, and also you can take that cost of solar and it's basically flat for 20, 25 years, which no other form of energy can guarantee a flat cost for 20, 25 years. So if you start investing in solar now, you can attract industries, uh, whether that's you know data centers or aluminum smelting or whatever industry uses a lot of energy, um, you can attract those industries because they're looking for inexpensive uh, energy and if you can have both inexpensive and clean, um, boy, that is a win-win. Yes, 